Let's find Hebrews chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 4. Then we're going to get get quickly started in in verse 1. In verse 1, the writer of Hebrews writes, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Let's pray. Father, I love and adore You. And I thank You, Father God, for the opportunity to come and to to share with this, Father God. And I pray, God, that I'm going to preach it with all my ability, that I'm not going to turn my back on it, Father God, or try to, to diminish it, Father. I don't want to edit away, God, what You have divinely inspired. So bless me, God, right now, that I'm going to preach as hard as I can with as much fire and thunder and lightning as You give me, Father God, and that the Word is going to be proclaimed today above all other words, Father God, in the name of Jesus, above all other names, Father, and that salvation may not be uh, embraced, Father God, or, or, or practiced by everyone in this room, Father God, but it will be heard and it will be undeniable. And that's what I want, Father God. I want to, if when in doubt, Father God, I want to preach the Gospel. When I don't know where to go, God, I want to go back to the gospel. And so today, Father God, needs to be a gospel day. God, not because I say it, because I believe every day, Father God, is a gospel day. So bless us to do this now, Father God, to, for me to preach it, God, and, and those around to believe it, to hear it, Father God, and for someone, God, today to be transformed, Father God, by your word. I love you, Father God. I know our culture's wicked and condemned. And I pray, Father God, this is part of what we do today, Lord, where we confront that culture. Lord, I love you. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Now, we have a context. I want to kind of share that context with you because I think it's vital for us to really understand what we're talking about today. Back in the early 1970s, um, uh, nearly 50 years ago, better part of 50 years ago, uh, Dr. John MacArthur wrote the following statement concerning these four verses. He said, hell is undoubtedly full of people who are not actively opposed to Jesus Christ, but simply drifted into damnation by neglecting to respond to the gospel. I'm going to stop there for just a moment in the midst of his quote to say this one thing that I'm going to try to say and restate over and over again. And that is, hearing the gospel is not enough. Responding to the gospel is enough. The gospel is a truth that demands an answer. And to sit in its midst... No matter how long you sit there, it will not permeate your soul lest you respond to it the way the gospel demands a response. Make, make nobody, nobody walk away feeling anything else but that. The gospel is heard and you must respond to it. Uh, Dr. MacArthur continues. He says, such people are really here in view in these four verses. These are people who know the truth who even believe the truth, who are well aware of the good news of salvation provided in Jesus Christ, but who are never willing to commit their lives to Jesus Christ. And so they drift on past the call of God into eternal disaster. Because that is the theme of these verses. It thus makes them extremely urgent and important verses. Now look, I feel the same way. In fact, I cannot imagine four verses which could be timelier are more urgently needed than these for our church and this community today. 
I'm not talking outside of, of this enclave. I'm not speaking outside of those in this room or those for whom we can interact with. The gospel is the truth which saves. And there's so many people around us who have the gospel tragically wrong. Now look, um, contained within these words is not a veiled accusation. It's really kind of an open accusation, to be honest with you. I'm not trying to mince words. To the contrary, I feel a real desperation of my own to inform God's people as to the implications of what I see in His Word. I want to prepare you to go forth armed with the most powerful equipage. And what I mean is this. I want to light a gospel fire in the heart and soul of every single true believer in this room so that we won't just go idly by when people, to be quite blunt with you, are unbelievers and practicing their unbelief right in our faces. We are far too polite. Far too polite. This is not a call to arrogance. It's not a call to meanness. But it's a call to boldness. The truth is, in this community, gospel-believing people and gospel-believing churches are complicit in sending people to hell. We're complicit. We're part of the problem. Until we embrace it, until we're ready to go forth, armed with the truth, and say what needs to be said, it's never going to change. I'm going to speak this truth to those in your life who are without vital understanding and life-altering commitment to Christ Jesus. To those people who are not really believers. And I'm going to say something. This is going to be... We do it. I do it. Everybody does it. And we've got to stop. We've got to stop making excuses for people. We've got to stop that. If there's nothing in their life that indicates a transforming relationship with Jesus, then simply put, they are not born again by anything that you or I can verify. Do we understand that? We can't go forward without that. We've got to stop making excuses for the husband or the wife that won't come to church or the neighbor that left for the dumbest reason you ever heard in your life. Stop making excuses. Because I'll be honest with you, there's going to come a day standing at the great white throne of judgment when no excuse will be valid. Because He has declared to us in Romans chapter 1 that we are without excuse. Nobody can point the finger at anybody else. Every single man, woman, and child are going to be responsible for their own souls. The advice of the Apostle Paul, we're going to get to shortly, is the same as the covenantal command of God through Joshua in Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you'll have good success. Our defense mechanism, our instruction book for living God-glorifying lives, and the foundational testaments to our freedom from the world in Christ is found in the Scriptures. Today, liberation is found in Jesus. Today, salvation is found in the Word of God and nowhere else. We live in a world offended by the Word, but yet the only place to go for salvation is the Word. What are they to do? The Word is the only hope. And when it confronts you or it confronts me, when it tells me that I'm an evil dog, then understand that it has no choice because truth is truth. 
each and every one of us who knows Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior legitimately and eternally does so because they've been taught, believed, and transformed by the words of Christ in the Bible. Every single one of us who can honestly profess Jesus only do that by the Word of God. Not by what old brother so-and-so said or how much your mama loved you or all these other reasons that we will prop up as straw men to defend our faith. We are who we are because the Bible made us so. From birth to death, the Word of God makes us who we are in Jesus and salvation is impossible without it. Without the gospel message to be believed, no man or woman would ever be saved. None. Saved people responded to the Word. I told you I'd restate it over and over again. If you want to be saved today, you have to respond to the Word. If you are saved today, you are saved because at some point in your life, you responded to God's truth. Now, I don't want to quantify too closely or qualify or describe response. But if your response has consistently been to do nothing, that is not a response. It is one, ju it is one judiciously. It will be held against you. But what God may want from you is more than you've ever been willing to give. What God may want are bitter tears. What God may want are, are to go to an altar or talk to a counselor. That's what God wants today. Something different than just to sit there in the midst of the gospel. And I'm going to try to show you that shortly. Now look, the book of Hebrews. Whole thing. And I don't think we can talk about 2, 1 through 4 without talking about the whole thing. Because it's also interwoven. It's written to three distinct groups of Jews. Hence the title is to the Hebrews. Right? Written to three distinct, Jews, uh, distinct groups of Jews. One group is truly Christian. They're truly believers. But they struggle with the ceremonies and the traditions of Judaism. They still struggle. Look at it this way. All they'd ever known was being a Jew. And it came with so much stuff. All they'd ever known. Now I'm going to give you a little hit here before I go any farther. I'm going to compare their plight to ours. Because their Judaism was cultural. Our Christianity locally is cultural. Hence the reason why you go out in the world you never meet a lost man, do you? Never met anybody lost. Never, I, I'm lost. I've never met anybody other than at the altar who would ever proclaim themselves lost. I've never knocked on a door that was, that was opened by a lost man as far as they were concerned. Because their Christianity's culture, their Christianity, they think they're saved by growing up in, in, in the Bible Belt. And these Jews thought they were okay. Not this group, but some of these Jews thought they were okay by, by keeping the tenets of Judaism. Now, I'm, I'm going to have to expound on that, so be patient with me. They do not understand that the work of the Old Covenant has been completed by the New. And that Christ is establishing through them in the Gentile world a new and everlasting faith, which in practice and culmination is everlasting. Which means what He's establishing in their lives, they would practice perfectly in the next. That's a weird thing to say, and I don't want to get into a minefield here, but it's not really biblically weird at all. What we practice today in our lives, in our faith with Christ, is colored by two elements. The fallen nature of the world and the physical separation of ourselves from Christ Jesus. 
And that we know there's a throne, we know we rest there, and we know He has indwelled us spiritually. We know these things to be true, but we're not going to see Him face to face. We're always going to see Him Brian, dimly. It's through a mirror, right? And the mirror one of these days is going to be gone. And then your life now of work and, 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 and enjoyment of the fellowship and, and, of, and of obedience and fellowship to Christ and all that is just a dim reflection of what it's going to be eternally one day. And for some of us, I don't know, we believe TV and we think our eternity is going to be robes and wings and harps. Like out of comics, every time Jerry killed Tom, he floated off with a harp and wings. That's in a cartoon, right? It's not like that at all. But it's true and vital and wonderful. And these things that make us humanity, the, the taste and the touch and the smell and beauty and all those things are not meant to be thrown away but are going to be perfected in what Jim Hamilton called a new and better Eden in which the, we're not going to struggle the way we do now but we're going to have perfect lives in Christ forever. Never dull, never boring. Always vital. And I can't wait. I can't wait for that. These people had that hope. After placing Christ above the prophets, which he does, which the writer of Hebrews does, in Hebrews 1.3, places all hope for this salvation, this eternal everlasting salvation, on Jesus when he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making perfection for sins, he set down the right hand of the majesty on high. Now look, I'm going to summarize that because it really is the, it is the gospel in, or the effect of the gospel on people in their very essence. And I'm going to share that with you right now because the Bible is so crystal clear about this. First, Jesus Christ is God the Son with the same nature as God. There are groups that will tell you mistakenly that somehow Jesus is not God. They are unchristian and deny the gospel. Because the gospel does not work if God doesn't take on the sins of the world. The gospel is unsaving if Jesus is not God. Unsaving. So we know this to be true. He is, Jesus Christ is God the Son with the same nature as God. Because we hear what? He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. Do you want to see God? See Jesus. You know what He looks like? He looks like Jesus. His grace maintains the universe. Why does this world not simply fall apart? Why do the crops not always fail? Why does every airplane not fall out of the sky? Why were all of us not killed on our journeys to church? Whether it be a half a mile or, or a hundred? Because of the glory of God, the grace of God. To hold all things together. Giving opportunity daily for the gospel. Over and over and over again, Christ arranges for the gospel to cross our paths. All of it intentional. Your heart beats today because either it brings glory to God or God awaits the glory He will transplant in you. One or the other. His grace maintains the universe and through the power of His Word, He saves it. The Word of God saves the world. His death purified us from sins. And now He rests upon His throne in heaven, awaiting the trumpet's call. Yeah, He is on the throne today. He is. 
The, the Christ I declare does not lie smoldering in a grave. The Christ I declare is not somewhere else lost. The Christ I declare is exactly where He wants to be on the throne that reigns. And today He calls out to men and women. You're not called out by a beggar. You're not even called out by a, car by a carpenter. You're called out by a king. The king of all glory. Look, stand in your life today. The King of all glory who ratified, who made true the gospel now calls from His throne for your very soul. For your soul. Laying claim to it. The words of Luke in Acts 4.12 are an excellent parallel to this undeniable truth. God's words insist. And there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by what, which we must be saved. The very name of Jesus, the literal Word of God, is the name that saves. It's the name that saves today. God from His throne, through the use of His very Word, transforms. The writer of Hebrews is urging his audience of believers to demonstrate their total reliance on Christ, His grace, and not send mixed messages to the world around them that the old, uncompleted covenant offered any hope at all. Now, here's a call very specifically to boldness. This is a call to boldness. This is a call not to lie. Not to lie. But what I mean by that is very simple. We do not intentionally, but unintentionally, we give all sorts of people around us all kinds of hope, don't we? Now look, I don't know their lives, and you don't either. I don't know their hearts, and you don't either. But we can see. We can see, and we can hear. And the very notion that we would sit there idly when someone did not profess Jesus but professed their worldliness and act as if somehow God is okay with that and they can slip by when we absolutely understand what saves and how men and women are saved, saved makes us not only complicit but treasonous to Jesus. Seditious. How dare we even imply Simple reality is this, is that their profession, their confession, ought to bring from us proclamation. We ought to see that as opportunity to proclaim the name of Jesus. And more often than not, we just politely nod, don't we? Because we're scared of doing what? Hurting their feelings. You know what I'm glad for? I'm glad somebody hurt my feelings one time. And you better be glad somebody hurt your feelings too. Because somebody, somebody somewhere preached into your life pointed a bony finger into your face or from the pulpit and told you that you were lost and for the first time in your life, you believed them. You believed them. You knew it was you. It might have been somebody else last week, but it was you this week. Somebody didn't care about your feelings because they cared about your eternity. That's the difference. Look, they did not believe, these Jews didn't, that the... Old Covenant saved. They didn't. They're doing what we do. We don't believe these people are really saved. We're just scared to say anything. We don't want to judge them. But the walking away from tradition, leaving the only world they'd ever known, its superstitions, even for the heavenly liberty, the true gospel was difficult. We've grown up like this. We've grown up in a polite culture where you let people talk about nonsense right in front of you, didn't we? We didn't want to hurt their feelings. It's rude. It's part of the trappings of our culture and something we have to walk away from. This is not a rejection. Now mind you, what I'm saying now is not some kind of a rejection of biblical morality. That's part of what I'm saying. 
Because Leonard Ravenhill wrote, he said, when there's something in the Bible that the churches don't like, they call it legalism. It's perfectly okay for us to say, and I quote, that sin is sin. How dare we not? How dare we not do that? Is this going to make us moralistic? Hope not. I hope it's going to make us biblical. True. Authentic. What we are condemning is hope of unconverted obedience. Because there's a lot of people out there, I believe, because of the Christians they've interacted, walking around thinking that somehow, some way, they can slide by. That there's a second path out there for good old boys or good old girls who say they're just as good as everybody else. I fear that path. I fear the proclamation of that false gospel. The truth's not without moral teaching. And the truth always separates us from the world. But there's another group. They responded intellectually, but their belief was not of the saving kind. Now this is the hard one. I've got to talk about something here that's going to make some people uncomfortable. There's no way around it because that's really one of the intended groups for this verse here. For these four verses. So I've got to talk about it. They're in danger of missing the boat, of neglecting such a great salvation. And the writer, he importunes them saying, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Better pay attention. The gospel's not free. And we never should be in a situation where we sit in its midst and we're not... And we're not urged by it. We're not convicted by it. We're not challenged by it. If I can sit in the gospel as if it's nothing, then it's never touched my heart. I know this is hard to hear because we've, we've adopted a very worldly view of belief. Now, I think this. I think this is because we have asked so many people we really know and love in very difficult situations how they were with God. And they said, I believe in God. But you know, I believe in God. Ever heard that before? Ever heard that from anybody in which you had no confidence in that belief? Yes. I've heard it on death, deathbeds before. I'm okay with the man upstairs. Chilling statement. A chilling statement to make. I don't want my peace of mind to rest on a statement like that. Worldly view of belief. It's more akin to acknowledgement or intellectual ascension and acceptance than it is said that pastuo belief of John 3.16. We always go back to John 3.16. I'm like, you've got to define belief, guys. You've got to go out and dig that verse out and say, God, what do you mean by belief? Well, let's talk about it for just a second. Now, look, the effects of this should be apparent to us in the world around us. Around us because so many profess Christ without any substantive impact on their lives. Now this is a sad state. Because there are people who don't, who don't, who have totally rejected Christianity. They sort of hang out in the church every once in a while and they, they'll sort of help out every once in a while. They're part of it. But it's more like a veneer. It looks like one thing on the outside, but the deeper you dig, the more the, the, the more different it looks. 
Now look, Christ Jesus being the Word incarnate, as stated in John 1.14, which says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart, as is stated in Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God, He is the incarnate Word of God, He is allowed to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God and the Word of God does exactly that thing. Judges. Jesus doesn't give Himself to all quote-unquote believers because His standard of belief is different than ours. Yes, we can make our mouths say almost anything, can't we? Almost anything. We can make our heads rationalize on a shallow level almost anything, can't we? Can't we? But at night, when darkness falls and we're alone staring at the ceiling, that shell doesn't last, does it? These are not people who are just going to drift by and never know. Deep down, they know. Deep down, they know there's something not quite right. He knows who really believes in the way which is saving and who does not. And the Word says exactly that in John 2, 23-25, which says, Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. It sounds like belief, doesn't it? But Jesus adds a qualification through John. They saw the signs that He was doing. This would plague Jesus, right? Whenever He fed, they flocked. When he stopped feeding and started demanding theologically, they fled. They ran away. When he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. When he says that fish and that those loaves aren't enough. When he said, water turned to wine, it's not enough. When he said, it only comes from me, that which saves. They wanted no part of it. So right here they demonstrated what Jesus is proclaiming. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Like I said, I don't know. I don't know what's in your heart. Um, you may not even really know what's in your heart. But Jesus knows you completely. You are fully known already. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. He trusted Himself to those He knew, He knew, had, sa had, had, had saving belief. Respectfully, the conclusion to be drawn here is that true gospel and biblical belief in Christ Jesus saves eternally and completely. I'm here to tell you to proclaim that. If you are born again today, you will be born again forever. If you're saved today, you are eternally saved. And nothing can separate you from a salvation that was not your own to earn and which was given by the very grace of God. You can trust in salvation today. It's not a desire to make you doubt. In fact, it's the exact opposite. If you are truly born again, you can't be more born again than you are. If you have truly believed, you have believed utterly and completely. It is in its essence transforming, belief is. Leading to the new birth of John 3. Those are born again by belief. Moreover, though it does not depend on any other factors, as John writes in 1 John 3.23, and this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of, 
of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded. This belief is never isolated from its temporal effects on the believer. The reality is this. If you have believed, God is doing things in you that you cannot hide. If you have been changed and born again by belief in Christ Jesus, there's no way to cover that. It gives us an effect right there. If you believe, you love one another. If you believe, you love the church. If you believe, you love as Jesus does. If you believe, you're separate and set apart. There's no condition of salvation, but there's a bunch of conditions for, uh, for the born again. There's a lot of conditions that this is what it means to be born again. This is what it looks like. The best measure of salvation is still Christ's command in Luke 9.23, which we've been harping on for years here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take his cross daily and follow me. The born again life looks born again. The obedient life shows its obedience. We're still bound by the wisdom of Solomon in Proverbs 11.30 which says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. Inside, the born again grows a tree of life. Not my words, but God's. If they are cryptic or strange to you, give me a moment to try to explain them. If we are truly born again, our lives will demonstrate that fact as a tree of life growing in us, capturing souls for the glory of God. Your faith will grow on its own. It will dominate. It will separate you from things that, that God hates and draw you to things that God loves. Demonstrate that fact as a tree of life growing in us, capturing souls for the glory of God. The good of the kingdom and the eternal joy of men and women. Faith does not exist in a vacuum. Faith without works is dead. But it flowers and it sprouts and it grows and it produces like faith in others. These precious people, the ones I'm talking about right now, maybe some in our very midst, at the very least, churches are full of people like this. Playing the part, the very definition of the hypocrite. Playing a part, an actor. These precious people, and there's no hatred here, there's love, there's deep love, are in mortal danger of neglecting this salvation. Because it is urgent that they respond to it while the opportunity is near their hearts. They have sat there and waited and waited and waited and never dared respond. And we're to tell you, today's the day to respond. Today is not the day to put off one more day that mighty work that God is willing to do in you. But now look, there's a parallel to our society. That one too is one of them, but this is even more troubling for me. It's too great to be ignored when it comes to the last group. This group has simply either rejected the truth or had avoided the truth. They're part of a culture and a system around them that they never question its validity. I mean, the Jews first. For the, for the Jews, this meant that they were good Jews protected by the system in which they'd grown up, and they'd never questioned the system or its origin. They did not realize or did they care that the traditions in place were not gods, but belonged to the rabbis of the Babylonian exile. 
that what they believe and what they practice didn't even go back to the scriptures. In our local culture, these are the people who even if objections were raised, they defended themselves with tradition and hokum. Pithy little statements like, judge not lest you be judged. The system of cultural Christianity, that's all that is. Could and must save them in their opinion. They're relying on this, being saved by this, because they're so dependent on its slack. What I mean, the opportunity to live as they pleased, without confrontation or conviction from the Word, each other, or the Holy Spirit. Striving to live exactly the way they want to, without any hang-ups, without having to worry about it, or feel bad about themselves. And in fact, if you came into church and you preached that way, they would say, all you want me to do is feel bad about myself. I'm here to tell you, I feel bad about myself all the time, whenever I'm in the presence of the gospel. Join the party. The Bible should confront us. And if you're not getting confrontation from the Bible, either you're living perfectly or you're not paying attention. The Bible makes people feel bad about themselves because we are all bad. We are all bad. They want all of this so they could not imagine life without this wiggle room. They need it. Christianity without evidence. The most basic of commitment or any life transformation is cultural only. That friend you've got that's been church in 30 years, don't hold out hope. That family member you've got that stomped out over the color of the curtains or the kind of music they play and won't come anymore, don't hold out hope. Don't hold out any hope. Because there's none. There's none to be found. All they do is tell themselves con constantly, everyone sins and all sins are equal. Which is technically true in that everyone sins. But it's potentially morally destructive and it's personally condemning. Because God, I would challenge you to go look at everything God says about, sins before you, about sin before you make any claims about how God judges sin. The one claim we can honestly make is this, is that the soul who sins must die and that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Those are the pronouncements we can make. All this meant to them was that they could live how they pleased, insulated from the razor's edge of biblical truth concerning behavior, belief, and actions. Now to confront this, Believers are injected into a world described accurately almost 50 years ago by Dr. MacArthur, which is best comprehended through Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3.1, which says, But understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty. So church, I prepare you for this, that this is a sign and important. The fact that we are surrounded locally by people who think this way means we are in those times of difficulty. There's times when it's not going to be a pleasant thing to be a believer. When there are going to be costs to believe. Let me share with you. At the verse of the chapter, Paul describes, expounds on the difficult times in which, in, in which uh, the world we see days in which men and women are so self-centered and wicked, so deceived by the enemy that the world would be best characterized by what he describes in 2 Timothy 3, 12-13. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If today you desire to live godly in Jesus, expect persecution. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse 
deceiving and being deceived. Deception. Hence the nature of culture, cultural Christianity is that it is deceiving. If you stand in the midst of it and declare that it is wrong and that it, that it condemns men and women to hell, then you are persecuted. Because we live in a culture that wants to, to believe that they believe and live the way they want to. Something we cannot stomach. Paul's response to the evangelistic church in a wicked culture is, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Verse 14, trust in what you've learned, church. Trust in what you know and what you hear practice, what you, what you see practice and what you hear preached. And prayerfully trust in the one, the ones who preach it, that we would not lead your souls astray. Continue to focus life and heart on Christ, His Word, and teaching our children from the start through much conflict and rebellion is an appropriate response to the world because in the Bible we find sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Salvation is by the Gospel. We teach it to our children. Understanding, and I hate to tell you this, but even for, I'll, I'll use Brian and Melanie because they have itty bitty baby. They have Miranda. They have itty bitty baby too. Right, Miranda? Itty bitty baby. And itty bitty baby, knowing Brian means, knowing Brian means, will not just be taught, but taught as if in competition. Right, Brian? We did yesterday. We did yesterday already. Already reading her the word. Um, and as, and as much as, as I honor that, and it's exactly what he needs to do, here's the reality. At some point, sweet, adorable baby will rebel, won't she? She will show, because she is not born saved, she will show herself to be a rebel. She will break the heart of God. And in response, he will break hers in conviction. Despite everything Brian and Melanie do to try to, to, try to keep this from happening, it is destined to happen. And it may be terrible. That sweet child that learned at your knee may one day turn their back on it for a time. And there's no avoiding it. Because in her, there's no, you, you cannot teach the rebel out of humanity. And don't fool yourself, parents, into thinking you can. Because you can't. Because it will show. And the proof is in you. Many of you grew up in church. And you still rebelled, didn't you? Turned your back on everything you claimed to know, everything you claimed to love. Why? Because deep down, you're evil incarnate. And God had to give you a new spirit and a new heart. But continue to teach those sacred writings because we believe they will return to those sacred writings. Salvation is always by the Gospel. Finally, However, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, and its dangerous truth hangs over us concerning the last two groups. As do the words of Dr. MacArthur and Paul's words, not Timothy 3, but in the next chapter where he writes, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the mist. And what are we to do? What are we to do if the one thing that will save the world they won't even listen to anymore? They will not listen to. Now, possibly all of us here are going to admit this is true. I, would, I bet if I polled it, yeah, sure, of course it's true. I see it, but here's the thing. It's always true with a caveat for most of us. 
It's California true. That place lost. New York true, lost. But it's not always Smith County true, is, is it? Because when it gets to be Smith County true, there's skin in the game. Because we kin to these people. This is our home. This is our families. And if we say that's true for them, then it means there's responsibility. Sever Smith County true or Mize true or your house true. Today from this sacred pulpit I must proclaim sound teaching and reject the demands of itching ears. Because I tell you what, in every church there are demands for itching ears. The demands that just want pleasing words. Talk about something sweet. I think the gospel is sweet. It just burns going down. Not in the vanity and pride of the man involved me, but in the preaching and defense of a truth which is not mine by nature but God's. I proclaim this boldly because it's not mine and I didn't invent it. Christ died to empower it, lived to affirm it, and reigns to proclaim it. I'm merely a caretaker of a truth transplanted in all believers like me, which transformed us and continues to transform our lives into, his, into the image of His life. That's the work of the gospel. The fact of the matter is, the cross placed upon your shoulders, the Word implanted that saves your soul over time, makes you look like Jesus is supposed to. Does it mean that we can lift ourselves up in pride? Not at all. It means that we've surrendered. Means we surrender to God's way and not our own way. The truth that the world will turn away from listening to is preached not as an unveiled attempt to harshly judge the lives in this room, but because sinners like us, just as wicked, have been saved from perdition, engaged in daily repentance, and filled with urgency by the very same and only true gospel. If I proclaim it in the life of somebody today who has either managed to to, to never respond to the gospel, hearing it for the first time and always rejected it and wanted to just be okay and live their own way. It doesn't matter. Understand, people just as black and just as dark and just as evil have come into this room and embraced Jesus. And He never turned His back on a single one of them. We're not declaring this because we're better. We're declaring this because we can admit we're as bad or worse. The question asked today by two groups of people. Those who've heard the Word and dwelled in its presence, but were never truly born again by its work and are called to believe wholeheartedly. And those who have rejected it completely, choosing instead to rely on their flimsy culture to say them is this, what must I do to be saved? That's the question. And what's needed is simple and profound. Psalm 78, 22, because they did not believe in God and did not trust His saving power. Why are people lost? Because they did not believe in God. They did not trust His saving power. What can I do? How can I escape from fear, the wretchedness of life? It comes when we believe in God without any reservations and with the entire heart. And we trust the saving power of the Christ who died to free us from bondage. Believe in God and trust Him with your sins. And do it today. Cry out today to God for salvation. Believe in Him and His Gospel and respond. Today is a day of response. Don't just sit there. Don't just sit there and go idly by hoping the opportunity will come again. Because it may not.